Tequila has a storied past, from the folklore of tears for Maya Well, to going on tour with the Rolling Stones, to its appellation of origin designation in 1978. In the last 20 years, the popularity of this agave-based spirit has soared, and with it come the challenges of sourcing and environmental impact in an industry experiencing exponential growth. Jose Pepe Hermosillo and his team at Casa Noble in Guadalajara, Mexico, integrate sustainability into their tequila production practices, from agave harvest all the way to the barrels they age in, sourced from France. At the forest, with the coopers, the experience when you cut one of these trees, imagine it's 100 feet tall, it's total silence for a few instants, and then it hits the ground, and the forest comes together with the smells and the noises of whatever the animals around, and it's just an amazing experience. I'm Colleen King. I'm Carolyn Kissick. Thanks for joining us today on Sorceress, where we demystify this famed distilled spirit, go inside the cyclical nature of growing agave, and learn how technology is helping refine flavor in this ever-evolving industry. Welcome to Sorceress. Welcome to Sorceress. So the funny thing about this podcast is that the caffeine in coffee really messes me up. And Colleen can't process alcohol, but she's a coffee sorcerer, and I'm in this tequila expert role. I don't even know how this happened. <laughs> Carolyn, what's agave? Is it a cactus? <laughs> no, Colleen. It's certainly not a cactus. Agaves are actually part of the lily family, and what? tequila has to be made. Yeah, right? Uh, tequila has to be made from one particular kind of agave, and it's the blue Weber agave. There's rules around tequila where it has to be made from just that particular one. And how do you harvest them? I know that you showed me some photos from your trips, and we've seen some agaves when we're just walking around in California, and they're giant, and then you get to give me like an amazing explanation of, is this male or female, or how is this going to produce? And then, But what you're really looking for isn't the giant spikes. I mean, you're trying to get to the center, right? So how do they do that? What does harvest look like? Agaves are harvested by gentlemen uh, that are called hemidors. It's a profession that is kind of passed down from generation to generation. So if your dad's a hemidor, you generally become a hemidor. Uh, but they go out into the fields with these really sharp blades called koas. So it's a long stick with like a circular blade at the end of it. We'll, we'll post some on social so you can see what they look like. It would personally be my zombie apocalypse weapon if I had to choose one. Um, <laughs> I would definitely be like chopping some heads off with that. But they go out, they kind of dislodge the agave from the ground. They don't really have roots, they're rhizomes. So they just like sit on top of the ground sort of, but you got to like dislodge them a little bit. And then they shave off all those spiky parts, which are the pencas to get to the heart, you know, the really starchy piece that we call a pina, because it looks like a pineapple once you shave it all away. And yeah, I sent you that video the other day of the guys loading them into the truck. They're so heavy and massive. They make it look so easy, but then you try and pick one up yourself and no. Like, absolutely not. No amount of CrossFit in the world equates to the amount of work that these guys do. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So many of these industries are so laborsome. And what's cool about hemidors, from what you've told me, is that it's an established profession, but it's also being threatened, right? There's a generational change that's happening right now. It's kind of just what's happening globally right now. Like, there's more you know, technology roles available. Guadalajara, which is the heart of where tequila is made, is the Silicon Valley of Mexico. So the tequila industry is really working to make sure that 
these humidors are well compensated, well taken care of, and that it's a revered position because as you'll hear Pepe say in the interview, we're screwed without them. Tequila literally cannot be made if that role goes away. You can't go out and mechanically harvest agaves. That does not exist. So it's it's a little bit in peril, but they're very actively working on making sure that it, it doesn't not exist. So when we were out in New York, we got to meet up with some of my coffee colleagues. And I remember standing in the kitchen all hanging out and realizing that we both are professional tasters, but the evaluation process of how we taste is so different. So for coffee, you know, you there's a few forms of evaluation. And for tequila, that's such a different thing. I mean, it's cool to hear Pepe talk about their process. What's crazy about it is because it's a distilled spirit, you have to really prepare your mouth because your mouth is not ready to take on 40% alcohol right away. And so when you're doing a really sophisticated tasting, you take a tiny sip and you let it go all over your gums on the bottom of your mouth. And then you take another sip and you let it go under your tongue. And then you take another sip and you brush it across your gums on the top of your mouth. Then you take another sip and you wash it in your cheeks and you're basically priming your mouth to be ready to taste a distilled spirit. And then what's also cool about the team at Casa Noble is, you know, Pepe is very, very on point about his tasting. They have these banks of aromas and flavors that you can taste and train your palate so that when you taste tequila, you can identify what you're tasting. So when I was at dinner with him and I was telling him what you do, he was like, we should all get in a room and taste things together, you know? And I think that that's what's so cool about all these sorcerers is we all do have really sophisticated palates because we have to. And it's really fun to sit in a room with somebody and be like, tell me how you taste chocolate or how you taste coffee or how you taste tequila and learn from someone else how how they go through the process that's similar but very different. Yeah, that's part of why we wanted to start Sorceress, right? Is learning from other industries that are in the specialty realm of tasting and sourcing. We all have a lot to learn from each other. It's cool. And, you know, I'd love to have like a Sorceress sleepover and just invite everybody over and we can do all tasting and be nerds together because it's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, should we get into the interview? Yeah, let's get into it. Hi, Pepe. How are you? Hi, Carolyn. I'm doing very well. Thank you. How about you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. And thank you so much for the lovely dinner at Hueso a couple of weeks ago. It was so Awesome to see you in person again in Guadalajara. Oh, it was so much fun. And and that place is amazing. It's going to become one of those iconic places of Guadalajara. You're friendly with the owners there, right? Are they good friends of yours? Yeah, actually, uh, the chef, uh, Poncho Cadena, is a good friend. Uh, He's a fantastic chef. And his sister and I went to school together. So that is an advantage when when, uh, you went to school with a sister of of the chef. You get... uh, special treatment. (laughs) Maybe just to start, just give us a little history on the brand and yourself and how long, you know, you've been involved in tequila. They tell me I was uh, drinking tequila when I was four months old. I don't remember, but uh, it's kind of in the blood. So seven generations uh, with uh, the tequila uh, as my memory of going back into my memory as long as I can. I can remember it's been part of my life, and more specifically in Casanoble, when we created Casanoble in the 1990s. So that is 
when we had that objective of creating uh, the best tequila we could with that experience, with uh, everything that we had learned in more than 200 years in, in tequila. So that's a little bit of the history. Obviously now with with Casanova and a second brand with Micampo, very excited with the industry and, and where we're going. And you grew up in Guadalajara. I did. I grew up in Guadalajara. I was born, actually I'm Guadalajara right now, so I was born here. Uh, studied here uh, almost all my life. I did go to college in the States, so so learned English. They tell me I have a good accent, so, so I learned English in, in the States. Your fields are up in Nayarit. You went and sourced virginal land for this, right? Untouched. Tell us a little bit about where the agave grow and what the, what the weather's like there and kind of what the the soil looks like bring us to the fields yeah they're in the border of Nayarit and in Jalisco it was something we had to be very careful with on one side obviously if we wanted that organic which going back to the organic we weren't thinking necessarily organic in the sense of certification but we we're thinking organic of a clean very very pure land or not contaminated so that was one of the things of that isolation because we didn't want any cross-contamination from other fields, obviously, into, into our fields. The other one was characteristics. We wanted certain characteristics in our tequila by having that specific location, which is very high up in the mountains. So you have that altitude. You have very dry, hot weather. Again, it's going to bring certain characteristics to the agave. It's going to be very porous volcanic. Again, we're thinking characteristics. So by having all that, we create this little bit of a microsystem that is going to stress those plants. And it's going to give me these beautiful aromas into our tequilas, which are going to be herbs and spices. And you're going to have beautiful vegetable notes in there, a little bit of minerality, not saltiness, but minerality. Really that earth translating and that true agave translating to stressing of the plant and that beautiful land that we are taking care of. We're letting it rest for a couple of years before we replant. We're using our own compost that we're creating at the distillery to re-nourish that land and obviously not putting any synthetics, no fertilizers, no pesticides. So all that is going to contribute and give me this beautiful agave that in turn uh, will give me this beautiful tequila. It's great to hear you have thoughts about flavor along every step of the way. One of the things that I've come to learn as I've been teaching people about tequila over the years is not a lot of people know the steps that are taken along the way. So let's just really briefly go through them for everyone. You have these agaves in the field. They're harvested by humidors. They're taken to the distillery. What comes next? So, and it's very important because when we have you, at, when you come visit us at, at the distillery and we go and run through the whole process and we take you to our barrel house where we do our tastings, I always want people to smell what the process and the agave and everything that we just visited translate into that liquid. So that's connection is very important to us. So after you harvest it. You're going to take the piñas, agave hearts, to the distillery. You're going to cook. And we do the traditional stone oven cooking. You have other options, like, you know, you could do autoclaves. But we like that stone oven cooking because you're going to get this 
beautiful sweetness out of the agave and you're going to get a little bit of smoke. You know, it's going to take some more, more time. It's going to take us about 36, 38 hours, but you are going to get the aromas. We're looking for our tequila. After that, we're going to squeeze the juices out. So you can extract those juices in different ways. One is crushing. We like to squeeze the juices as a proprietary system, which generates no bitterness by squeezing instead of crushing. So that is going to be the next step. So you're going to get this mosto, and it's going to be this agave honey or juice that now you're going to put into fermentation. The fermentation can be a quick fermentation, adding industrial yeast. Again, we like to do it very traditionally, and we do a, a natural fermentation. The distillery is nestled between all these, the volcano and all these hills. So we have these uh, bit of stable yeast around us, which will give us beautiful notes of flowers and fruits. You know, we have 150-year-old mango trees. So all that is going to contribute, again, to the, the profile. So we are, with the fermentation, turning those sugars in, into alcohol, which now the next step after fermentation is distillation. To be able to be tequila, you're talking about it has to be distilled at least twice. You can distill, again, let's say in more industrial way, which with, with a tower of distillation or containers distillation. Or in our case, we're doing uh, pot stills. We have small pot stills, so everything's going to be small batch. And in our case, instead of distilling twice, we're distilling three times, which is going to give us a very pure, very fresh uh, tasting tequila but we're doing it very slowly because we've been creating those these aromas since the agave we were talking about all the way through to that distillation. So we are very careful not to eliminate our aromas. So now we're getting to our base of our tequila, which we're, we're going to have to then go into filtering, diluting, oxygenating to get it into what is our Casanova Cristal or our, our Blanco. Now we've gotten to the part that I'm always just so fascinated by is the sourcing of the barrels that you do your aging in. You have a very unique way of doing this. They come from France and they're new barrels. Correct. We are using a French oak, brand new. We buy in a couple of, of beautiful, beautiful coopers and Cooperages, I don't know how you say in English, in uh, France, one is Torasso uh, and one is Navalier. We are making sure these are trees that are 200, 250 year olds that are going to be very tight, poor, that is, are going to give us again the aromas we want for our tequila. It's very unusual because tequila normally uses bourbon barrels, use bourbon barrels. Uh, in our case, our barrels are going to be obviously the French oak, but then we're going to do, instead of a charring, we're going to do a toast. The whole process is different. So you're going to get all these beautiful, complex aromas from the French oak together with the uh, tequila, which we want to respect. Obviously, that that aroma, if I'm drinking tequila, it's something very important to me that that tastes like tequila. By using this French oak, it's going to make it more complex. It's, it's going to have much more depth through our reposados, our añejos, and our extra añejos. And that's a really difficult balance to maintain. I think there's a lot of aged tequilas that end up, you lose the agave flavor, especially once you get into the añejo categories, you know, aging it for a, 
at least a year. And I am constantly surprised when there's somebody behind the helm who can maintain that agave. And I think the it shows through all the way, despite you using brand new barrels. And you were showing me pictures that you actually got to go to the forest last time you were out there and go help select some trees to be uh to be, I guess, is coopered the right word? I don't, I don't even know. But how was that experience? I mean, that's that's sourcing all the way through, Pepe. You you did absolutely everything in the chain this time. It, it, it's amazing. I mean, we uh, are talking about agave, right? That takes seven, maybe 10, 12 years to, to grow. But these trees take 200, 240 years. And in, in the system, obviously, of the French to control that and make sure that we always have enough trees and how they auction them so so learning all that process was was interesting but then being there at the forest with the coopers and just the experience when you cut one of these trees imagine it's 100 feet tall and they cut it and it it's total silence for a few instants and then it hits the ground and the forest comes together with the smells and the and the noises of whatever the animals around the birds and it's just an amazing experience and then you go in actually we went the next day and they had already the trees there and they were doing the staves and all the work and the art of making the staves and then those staves actually are going to stay in the place for three years where they're seasoning really extracting any any uh, bitterness and then the barrels are being made. So it's, it's an amazing process for sure. Very lucky to, to be part of that experience. Pepe, one of the things that I really enjoyed at dinner was our conversation over sustainability. And, you know, you kind of have two perspectives on it. One was kind of more like organic sustainability side of things, how the agave is grown. You know, you are organic certified, and I'd love for you to go into that a little bit, but also treating sustainability more for the future of humans than just a marketing piece for your product. So could you take us through what it, it took to get Casa Noble Organic certified and what that really means kind of start to finish uh, when you're making the product? Yes, of course. So uh, organic, obviously, is an important part of our, of our philosophy and sustainability and sustainability as a whole we see it as obviously as a responsibility that we all have and something that's very important, you know, a little bit of respecting our past and uh, going forward uh, and, and making sure that the industry and our lives uh, are, are aligned with that uh, basic philosophy of, of, of sustainability. But organic specifically uh, was something we began uh, without really the objective of having certification in, in, the, in the start, it was more about being uh, careful with our process and what we were putting in the earth. And that uh, was a long time ago. And then it became something that we wanted to uh, become certified and we learned more and, and went through all the steps to become organic, which in essence, uh, you are not putting any synthetics into the ground uh, and you're also not coming into contact through all the process uh, with uh, anything that's not going to be organic or that's going to be uh, some type of synthetic that's going to be a contaminant. 
So it sounds simple in a way, but as CCOF, which we were the first to be certified CCOF organic back in 2009 in uh, rules and, and as we went through all the process, it, it is uh, a lot of different steps from obviously those basics, which is no fertilizers, no pesticides into the ground, but also anything that comes into contact. So all our tools that we're using for the harvesting even, uh, or our transportation cannot come into non-organic material when we are going to uh, put organic material or our agave into those trucks, or if we're going to obviously use the koa to cut, they have to be previously cleaned with something that's going to be obviously admiss admissible. We're taking notes and records of every single step. And that's the section that goes into uh, what is the field. And then you go into the distillery. So again, anything that comes in contact with the production has to be organic or has to be cleaned previously. So, you know, if you look at the whole process, the ovens or the tanks for the fermentation or anything that we're talking about will have to be cleaned specifically and cannot come into contact with something that's not organic. So again, we're doing all the process of taking notes and in, 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 uh, controls for every single step in the process to really make sure that we're accountable for that process and the organic side of it. And then CCOF will come and verify. So every year uh, they'll come and verify that we are doing both in the field and in the industry the proper steps for our certification. You know, when I first started coming down to Guadalajara about 10 years ago, Casa Noble was the first ones to really be starting to take these steps that I was aware of. And now it seems like the rest of the industry is moving towards that direction. What what do you think prompted the industry to start going this direction? You know, it was often just referred to as a very water-intensive process and there was waste, but there wasn't really ever a good answer of where anything would go. And, and now I'm hearing more and more distilleries and brands that are taking this as an initiative. Was it just an organic thing? Did it come from the government? Can you give us a little insight on that? I think it's it's uh, comes from different places. I think definitely rulings have become more tight on what is waste specifically is something that's going to be very critical. So the controls of waste uh, have become tighter and tighter. Also, initiatives like we are Industria Limpia. It was a five-year effort of really becoming 100% no spillage. So that means we're composting, we're treating water. And that was an initiative that came from the government. You didn't have to participate, but several companies decided to participate, us being certified back in 2010. But I think on the other side, you see the responsibility. A lot of companies are realizing the importance of being sustainable or having certain practices economically, and commercially, uh, it is beneficial for, for the companies. So more companies are realizing that. So on one side, obviously, the companies seeing that. And another side, definitely regulation has become more strict. And you have another interesting certification. Uh, you're kosher certified. And I found out what that really meant for you. And that means there's no additives added to your tequila. So could you explain what the, the allowance is on 
additives and why you choose not to put anything into into Casanoble. I love, you know, when you say it's just agave and water. Of course. So that kind of brings together the three things we're, we're doing for sustainability. So one, obviously, the organic we talked about. The second is the industria limpia, our clean industry, which we're very focused in that uh, small carbon footprint or as small as possible, no spillage, composting, and all that. And then the other one is that kosher certification, where we are certifying that we are only agave, blue agave, tequilana weber, and uh, in water, which we have that beautiful water from, you've been there from the, the volcano that's coming down from the volcano, the agave and the, and the water uh, use only is being guaranteed by that certification. Because in tequila, you can add four things, and you can add them legally, 1% solids of glycerin, which is used for body. You can add uh, caramel for color, oak flavoring for flavor, and fructose. But by being kosher, we're certifying that we are not adding any of those. And the essence, besides really respecting what is tequila and, and the process, is also our characteristics. And the characteristics of Casanoble as uh, really being true to what tequila is, the agave and the processing, when, what we translate into what the liquid, the, the aromas, the flavors, the nuances. And you mentioned that the French have a system to make sure that there are enough trees, they're auctioned off correctly over time. And that was a that was a common theme, you know, that kind of continued to come up for us in dinner. And we got onto the topic of agave and, and pricing. And I know that you grow your own estate agave for Casa Noble, but agave is one of those things that people don't hear about in the mainstream, especially up here in the States, that the price is kind of always in flux. Every 10 years, there's a, a big cycle of this and kind of discussing a couple of solutions of of where this goes. We've seen a lot of things become commoditized over time and both landed on the fact that I think we both agree that it should be fair market price. But what what's happening with agave pricing and what do you think the long-term solution to beating this boom bust cycle is is going to be. Yeah, I think the basics of it is as as an industry. I don't I don't mean the industry, uh, the industrials or the tequila makers or the agave growers. I mean as a whole industry, including the, the commerce. We need to have a different mentality. Not when the agave prices down, we want to pay as cheap as possible, and when the prices up, the agave growers want to charge you as much as they can. So I think it, it has to be a win-win uh, situation. For other brands, we are have been signing contracts now for a while where we determine a certain pricing structure where they're really being benefited for the work that's being done and in, in, in the time that's being spent in the fields and, and obviously the hard work of of harvesting and all the, the the process, and it's a fair price that's that is being agreed on for the long run. So we have contracts for five six years, where even if the price goes down to nothing again, we'll be paying a higher price that is that is fair. But then on the other side, we have the price when it goes up, we still pay that fair price. And I think obviously that is a form of controlling it. But at the end. Can we be more conscious as an industry that it's going to benefit all of us if we can maintain that consistency? And can we make it a little more 
clear or transparent when we're planting too much agave or when we're planting very little agave. And CRT has worked very hard to do this. It has done a good job, but, but more as a, as a whole industry, can we be more conscious and more responsible? You and uh, Davian are two of the people that I have learned the most about tasting from over the years. Lucky enough to go through a single barrel selection process with both of you. And I think that really, really stands out in my mind when I think about you and your reputation and and what Casa Noble stands on there. You are now part of the Constellation portfolio. <laughs> and we got into a little conversation about the marrying of the traditional ways of tasting for quality for your brand and some of the new technology that's come into play since you've had that partnership. You have your friend who is the nose, and now you have, I'm going to botch this, so maybe you can fix it for me, but a spectro chromatographer, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> Tell me a little bit how that's changed tasting for you and changed or evolved the way that you uh, do your final blending, et cetera, for, for your tequila. Uh, for sure. Yes, Constellation, back in 2014, uh, we became part of, of the portfolio and we're very proud of that. And it's been a fantastic experience in the sense that they've let us do things that I think are capable abilities or in our capacity, which is obviously that making tequila and producing the best tequila, that that's why they became or we became part of them and the reason for it. But on the other side, giving us other additional capabilities as the gas chromatographer, which, you know, just a few companies have it as a big investment. But, you know, you have the subjective part of tasting, which we've been doing for for many years where we have our mother sample and we have our reference sample and we have our sample that we had in our last batch, which we are very small batch produced. And then we have our new batch and we are comparing with different people in uh, different rooms that are our team that is very well educated in what is tasting, including the nose, our lead which has been with, with us, with me for 21 years or so, which they're all tasting. And you get each one's opinion on that tequila that we are comparing and the new batch that we're creating. And that way you get some subjective thoughts on that tequila. And then we confirm it by more objective methods, which is the gas chromatographer, which is going to tell me which alcohols flavors are in that tequila and do they actually compare that graph that i'm creating do they compare with certain points in the graph with my mother sample or with the past sample so being able to have that technology is 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 fantastic that's one of many things that we have received from from constellation and also obviously comparing and learning from other of the wineries and what they do, other of the spirit companies, what they do, give us more capabilities to better do our jobs and, and make sure that at the end, that tequila that you are getting and tasting and enjoying is hopefully the best that we can uh, make, produce, and, and, and get to your lips. And when you're training to taste, to look for these these flavors, these profiles, not only are you looking for the good flavors, but you also have to train yourself on the defects as well, correct? 100%. So everybody in the team, the taste has been has taken many different courses, not just on tequila, 
bit on wine and on tasting. And then we have a, a little kit, aroma kit, that we have all these aromas, that about 50 different aromas, of which they constitute a lot of the aromas we have in Casanova, but some are general aromas just on tequila, and we continued practicing. But also when you're doing distillations, you're going to get bad aromas if you don't cut your heads and tails correctly. So you could get acetone or you could get olives, which is an indication of bad distillation or, or badly done distillation. So we are also looking for those aromas when we're tasting to make sure we don't have those disagreeable aromas in our, in our tequilas. Definitely be careful if you smell acetone in, in your tequila, you're going to have a bad night or a bad morning for sure. Everyone knows what those feel like, and I don't think anybody wants one. <laughs> well, Pepe, I have, I have a question for you. If you were to not be sourcing tequila, if you were not the tequila man that you are, what would be something that you would want to source instead? I know you have a variety of interests and you're always taking classes, but what, where would you move if you weren't doing what you're doing now? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I love it and that's <laughs> my, my biggest passion, but definitely music is a big passion for me. But I think probably food. I'm, I'm very, very uh, big foodie. Um, I was in this amazing restaurant. I'll have to, I'll have to uh, show you. We'll have to go next time you come, uh, which is Juniko, which is a, actually a Japanese restaurant. But it was a lunch that was done by this great Japanese chef that we have here, together with a Mexican chef, Jonathan Gomez Luna. And he has an amazing restaurant. And we went through, a, I think it was like a 15 course or something like that. Omakase, as they call it, dinner, and I had all my family with me, and we we're just enjoying. So, I would probably go with food on this one. I like it. I like it. I think you'd be very good at. It. You picked out a very nice bottle of wine for us from Valle de Guadalupe, and so wine's coming up in in Mexico, which is really interesting. Uh, up in near Baja, yes, right? Uh, I think some of the wines in Baja, Mexican wines, all very small wineries. And, and they're doing some beautiful things, some great, interesting blends, obviously some, you know, Tempranillo, Cab, you start getting into other things that then they blend together and they, they've been doing some, some really interesting things. Uh, up there in, in Baja. Well, if you're in Mexico, you gotta obviously have some tequila, but now there's some wine for you to drink as well. Thank you, Pepe, so much. It's always a pleasure talking to you and uh, seeing you. So hopefully next time I'm back in town, uh, we'll get together and, and go do some omakase because I that sounds great to me. <laughs> Would love to. Uh, next time, I look forward to, to, to seeing you down here. You can learn more about Pepe and his team at Casa Noble at casanoble.com or follow them on Instagram at casanoble. Stay tuned for the Sonic Sauce of Sorceress, our music segment, where our music curator, Daniel Maggio, takes you through a musical history lesson of culture and politics in the state of Jalisco. If you haven't already, please leave us a review wherever you're finding us out there in podcast land. We're a radical group of women trying to make this happen, and your support means so much. Hey everyone, this is Danielle Maggio, delivering you the sonic sauce of Sorceress. 
For this segment, I'll be talking about a musical genre and artists that are uniquely connected to the Mexican state of Jalisco. So all the artists in the playlist are either from Jalisco or recorded music in the capital city of Guadalajara. That is, all with the exception of Mexican-American Tejano pop star, Selena. I just needed to include Selena because she's so iconic and she gives me so much life. So there's my disclosure about Selena. With that said, uh, I've decided to focus this segment on mariachi, seeing as how Jalisco is the birthplace of mariachi. So let's get into it. Mariachi has strong ties to Spanish colonialism, dating back to the 18th century. Along with new religious, cultural, and political systems that were forced on the indigenous communities of pre-Hispanic Mexico, the Spanish also brought with them new instruments and new music styles. Strings, brass, and woodwinds began to replace indigenous instruments and the European polkas and waltzes dramatically transformed the sound and structure of Mexican folk music. So when you listen to mariachi, it's an amazing example of acculturation, or the gradual process of cultural change that results when two different cultures come into close contact with each other. Essentially what you have is a type of brass band music that's a hybrid of military presence, colonization and indigenous and folk music styles. And this type of hybrid brass band is very common throughout the colonized world. Traditionally, mariachi is performed by all-male ensembles, although that is changing to some degree. These ensembles dress in elaborate, very ornate cowboy outfits, and they soon became a staple of the modern Mexican soundscape. Not only that, but mariachi quickly became a national symbol of Mexico with the advent of mass media technology in the 20th century. This newfound symbolic nationalism was cemented during the golden era of the Mexican entertainment industry, which lasted from the 1930s to the 1950s. During this new era, polished recording artists and film stars like Jorge Negrati, who acted as the first celebrities of Mexico, told stories of cowboys desperately singing songs about love and beautiful women and heartache. These songs were set in front of nostalgic pastoral scenery and were accompanied by famous mariachis of the era. Now, what I found most interesting and problematic about mariachi is how mariachis have historically embodied an important tenet of Mexican nationalism, which is masculinity. While female mariachis are less common and unfortunately viewed as less authentic due to the genre's strong connection and commitment to masculinity, their presence has dramatically increased starting in the 1990s and it continues to increase today. One of the musical characteristics that is unique to mariachi and what gives mariachi its specific feeling and sound is the gritty sentimentality of the vocals. And so historically, and as represented in the media, these vocals are often understood to be a byproduct of tequila-induced intoxication. This connection to tequila is not only rooted in the venues in which mariachi is typically performed, such as plazas and cantinas, but also in the emotional restrictions that are placed on men in colonial nation-states. In other words, Mexican culture, along with many other cultures, 
dictates that men can only express feelings of vulnerability or be highly emotional if intoxicated. So with that said, I want to shift our focus to one specific musician in our playlist. This is an iconic, virtuosic musician who paved the way for many women in the Mexican entertainment industry. Her name is Shabella Vargas. Shabella Vargas is known for her interpretation of Cancion Rancheras, which is a traditional style of ranchera or country music. Rancheras are really emotional songs about love and romance and the hardships that come from those two things, and they're told from a male's perspective, accompanied by mariachi. These are the types of songs that the golden era cowboys like Jorge Negretti would be singing in those films. However, Shabella's unique interpretation of ranchera completely altered the status quo. She did this through several interpretive and stylistic techniques. First, she stripped away the mariachi completely and replaces the accompaniment with a singular guitar. Second, she drastically slows the tempo down of the song so that her solo female voice is the number one featured instrument. And lastly, her harsh, coarse timbre, or the color of her voice, evokes that style of drunk singing that we talked about before. Shavella bends and pulls at the song's melodic line in order to exaggerate its lyrical content. And in doing that, she's mimicking the emotional cowboy that has historically played the role of the singer. Shavella's voice opened the door for new sounds and bodies and stories within the Mexican entertainment industry. Her voice masterfully reduces the narrative of both the cowboy and the mariachi, revealing them as symbols of masculine nationalism as she reveals her own voice. Performative, desperate, and devastating. To listen to this week's playlist, as well as access playlists from past episodes, go to Spotify or Apple Music and search for Sorceress. That's S-O-U-R-C-E-R-E-S-S. You can also access them through our website at sorceresshq.com. The playlists are public, but we hope you'll consider subscribing to our podcast so you can get fabulous fresh updates each week and easily access the playlists. Thank you all so much for your support, and we hope you enjoy the sonic sauce of Sorceress. Sorceress is written, directed, and produced by Carolyn Kissick and Colleen King. Our music curator is Danielle Maggio. Theme music by Flatbroke Robot. You can find us online at sorceresshq.com or on Twitter and Instagram at sorceress underscore underscore. Until next time, sorceress fans, stay curious.